0: So trouble so hard. don't know my trouble but God. don't know my trouble but God. Welcome to the radical Reverend show, still off-site. Uh, recording this on Zoom. I know out there in Radio Land you're all getting very, very tired of Zoom meetings, but bear with us. And you of course can hear this on podcast too, as well as CIUT. You can hear us on iTunes and SoundCloud, among others. So do tune in and do let me know what you think. I love to hear from you. I always respond. Uh, Your suggestions are taken to heart. And we're delighted that you're listening. And then again, thank you for the support you've given to this radio show. So today on the Radical Reverend show, it's the Law and Disorder panel, which is always so exciting. It's the second one ever. And we have two lawyers with us. We have uh, Dell Duset, who is a criminal defense lawyer. He's been with DFR litigation and he has a 30-year record as a criminal defense lawyer and now is working in part to overturn wrongful convictions as well as doing appeals. He's also an avid birder, he wants you to know. Dell. welcome to the Radical Reverend Show.
1: Thank you. Uh,
0: and we have uh, David Slavic uh, and David... Uh, his first time on his show, although it feels like he's been on before, certainly many people that he knows have been on the show, began his career in law a policy, um, working in the former Yugoslavia, which I find very interesting. So you'll have to say something about that, David. Um, and then moved to Washington DC and there managed the Elon University School of Law, which is where, among other places, he taught activists how to be activists, which I find interesting. Uh, He's hosted numerous panels on policing and prison reform and is now a Canadian, almost a Canadian, a landed immigrant with working papers, right?
2: We're all settlers here, but uh,
0: <laughs> that's true. That's
2: I'm just true. a little newer than the rest of you.
0: <laughs> that's true. We're very glad you're here. Uh, so that And that's a clue to what we're going to be talking about, of course, uh, the subject on everyone's mind since the uprising of Black Lives Matter, which is police reform. But also today, I wanted to talk about prison reform. That's something that hasn't been gaining as much news and probably should. We've heard little bits about it uh, as related to COVID and what's happening in, in prison system, uh, but we really haven't been focusing on it as much. Um, So before we get going, um, uh, David, I just want to get back to you and and get an update really on what's happening in the U.S., because there have been pretty substantial changes in many centers in the U.S. because of the uprising of Black Lives Matter, and you're close to that reality. So tell us what's going on there that we should know about
2: what we're seeing is two countervailing forces in the United States coming in uh, stronger and stronger waves. Um, it's uh, creating a sort of riptide through the public policy sphere where you have a number of people who are, are looking for more of a law and order approach to government and governance, uh, You know, a strong hand, a daddy to make them do what they need to do and make the bad people go away. On the other hand, we have a a collective uh, group of people who are coming across uh, in a multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalition of decency uh, who are calling upon the state to finally do what it is intended to do and protect its own citizens. Um, we as, as Americans have a very high s- sense of uh, self about how we approach government, uh, yet we don't do a lot of self-reflection when it comes to uh, how black and brown people are treated, how indigenous people are treated, how LGBTQ2A people are treated. Um, and this is part of a broader social movement to create inclusivity and equity across the entire country.
0: So you had mentioned a few specific cases, which I found very interesting. Tell us what's happening in Minnesota and also tell us what it, what's meant by the blue flu. Uh, <laughs> so. I was interested in that.
2: So the blue flu, uh, like, like many um, sort of cold viruses uh, of insidious nature, does come from New York City. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a tool that's used by uh, the a police union there, uh, a police union that is uh, run uh, by uh, a, a former officer who is has uh, been on police review, uh, I believe seven times for um, violent behavior with, with people in custody, uh, with someone who's uh, a sh- supporter of the uh, conspiracy theory, uh, QAnon. Uh, he just went on Fox News uh, with the QAnon hat. And and that essentially is that, that there is a, uh, a message board on Reddit that uh, essentially has Donald Trump being the super cop of the world, uh, going to get pedophiles from around the world that are hiding in pizza parlors. This is the type of people uh, who are running these powerful organizations. The, the NYPD is the uh, one of the biggest armies in the world. And if you look at the militarization of them, it's essentially Israel on, on one island, uh, blocking out people, blocking people in, keeping black and brown people in their neighborhoods and in place. Uh, the blue flu is a reaction to uh, what, The very tepid measures, Bill DeLazio, who I've been very disappointed with in recent years, uh, has done to taper back in the the wave of Eric Garner. If you remember, he couldn't breathe. That was a uh, a father of of one uh, brilliant uh, Erica Garner uh, who was arrested for selling loose cigarettes. Uh, If you remember, any Republican should be supportive of that, right? you know, (laughs) a deadly consumer product sold at the free market. Uh, You know, we didn't see people stand up, but we did see a very reactionary uh, militarized NYPD uh, stop enforcing petty crime uh, uh, and and enforcing uh, violent crime um, infractions across the city in order to make people feel unwell, unsafe, and unwelcome in their own city. And that's just because they got a little criticism.
0: Okay, so basically just taking time off.
2: Yeah, taking absolutely. Taking time off on the
0: public purse. Um, uh, and, and Minnesota, what happened there? That was awesome.
2: So the Minnesota City Council in the, the wake of the George Floyd uh, incident um, had made a decision. Uh, so you know, as you know, um, in the United States, many places have mayors, just like in, in, in Canada, many places have mayors and councils. Uh, Minneapolis is what essentially a weak mayor uh, formation, despite the fact that the uh, mayor there, Jacob Fry, was uh, has been held up as a sort of a, uh, a kindler gentler Pete Buttigieg, uh, you know, of the neoliberal order and uh, in, in the Democratic Party, um, the council, which leans much more left, uh, has voted unanimously to start to the process of abolishing their police and creating a, a community outreach program that would replace it over time. The um, it's not proven, but it is thought that many police and police family members are actually threatening the members who voted for this. Uh, so much so that there was uh, the <coughs> that the um, uh, city had to incur nearly one hundred thousand dollars in uh, private uh, security force uh, to protect themselves. Um, it's getting violent. It's acting like a protection racket. We're seeing that throughout the city and throughout the city and throughout the country, where when we talk about reasonable reforms to police forces, uh, they come back on social media in the light of day, on your iPhone, on your computer, saying, we won't protect you, even though you pay our salary, because you have criticism of us.
0: Just to interject there, I had a bit of that myself. Um, I remember um, this demonstration, by the way, that I attended yesterday, which many in the city of Toronto attended, um, no Pride in Policing kind of brought together the two LGBTQ communities and the calls for defunding and abolishing, calling for 50% reduction in the police budget, among other demands. Um, but I do remember when uh, the issue first hit Pride of not having police in uniform march in Pride. Police were never kept from marching in Pride, just not their uniforms. And um, so I, I tweeted out at that point, Proud of Pride. And immediately heard from McCormick at the head of the police union on just lambasting me on Twitter and, uh, you know, taking to task the entire NDP because I was still sitting MPP. And and what was kind of ludicrous about that to me was that nobody had done more for first responders than I had. I fought for five years to get PTSD as a, a workplace injury particularly for first responders. I wanted it for all workers, but couldn't get that. Um, So for first responders, we did get it finally. It took forever. And to be immediately attacked, I thought was really something. So anyway, I want to get to Dell and talk about what's happening in Canada. So what's happening north of the border, particularly in our prisons, Dell? since you're closer to that reality than any of us.
1: Well, um, I'll come back later to some of the things David has said to pick up on them on policing in Canada, because I think it's very important to demilitarize policing in Canada as well. We've learned something about prisons and jails because of COVID-19. The prisons and jails, as one might imagine, because of the way people are housed, are basically Petri dishes for infection. So the Solicitor General in Ontario came up with a number that if we reduce the number of people who were in jail to 60% of full capacity, they would be safe. So they let 40% of the people out. And guess what? We have not had a massive crime wave in Southern Ontario where that's happened. My guess is we easily could have let out 90% of the people in our jails. And not have had much of a crime wave, any crime wave at all. So it's a real sign that we over incarcerate people, and that's over incarcerating people at the front end of the process before they've even gone to trial. That's what our jails are for. And as you can imagine, uh, because of the way that policing works, uh, Black people. Indigenous people, other persons of color uh, form a very high percentage of those people. Something that I learned and I've asked some people to look into this is that in northern Ontario, we have not reduced the number of people in our jails, that some of those jails are still at 100% of capacity. And guess who lives in those jails? It's our First Nations people. And I don't have much personal experience in the North. I've only done one trial up there, but I can tell you that when I went to meet my client at the Thunder Bay District Jail, the DJ as it's known locally, I saw a place that was rat infested, cockroach infested that should have been bulldozed years ago. It is not fit for human habitation. Yet we keep people in there. And that's that's the people who are in there before trial, the people who are presumed innocent. Of course, then you go to trial, and because of the overrepresentation of people through over-policing of Black, Indigenous, and other persons of color, we get very high proportions of those folks in our prisons. As a general matter, I have believed for years that specific and general deterrence, as it's called in the criminal law, don't work. I can tell you I've represented some clients who have done bad things over the past 32 years. None of them stopped before they did it to think, huh, I wonder if I do this, I'll go off to jail. It doesn't happen. That's not the way people's brains work. So what we have is a system that is built on a theory of deterrence that doesn't work, We put way more people into prison because of that theory. And then in essence, we cage them. And in the provincial system, they get almost no education, no programming. They're just caged. The federal system where people are doing two years or more is a little bit better, but how well does anyone get educated or reformed if they're made to live in a cage?
0: A couple of things I wanted to pick up on and, and what you were saying. First of all, wasn't Thunder Bay the place where the entire police force came under some scrutiny? There was a huge, uh, it just twinged twigged with me, there was a huge scandal up there with the Thunder Bay police force in terms of racism.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, there is a uh, the huge problem, I forget the name of the author who wrote the book, with Seven Feathers, about, I mean, Thunder Bay is a place where kids who live on fly-in reserves, who don't have high school education on the reserves, are brought in, and there is a, a horrific problem with homicide of those kids in Thunder Bay, and a problem of it not being properly investigated. The, the thing about the mayor and the police chief was some sort of war between the two of them, but had both of them doing criminal acts against each other, if I remember correctly. So uh, I'm not sure that's uh, connected to the First Nations issue. It was a extra piece of corruption, if you
0: will. Wild times in the, in the far north. Uh, we're talking of course here on the Radical Reverend Show in our Law and Disorder panel. I'm talking to Del Doucette. Uh, Criminal lawyer for over 30 years. I'm also talking to David Slavik new to Canada, but not new to the law Um, Been working in Washington DC among other places in Yugoslavia as well Um, I I want I want to touch on the beginning of uh, The law and disorder system if you will or certainly the beginning of the prison system and and again um, this goes back in my uh, studies, but I, I seem to remember that the whole setting up of, of the prison system originally was this idea of reform of, you don't just torture people, you don't draw and quarter people, you don't lop off their heads. Um, no, no, you, uh, and it was a, a Christian and a Baptist idea that you just set people aside, you give them time out, sort of like a bad kid, give them time out to pray and to meditate and to contemplate their lives and then re, you know, resuscitate them into, uh, back into society. Uh, and and it, it just strikes me, you know this is a good deed that definitely um, went punished. Um, but wow, um, how far we've come where, I mean, David, to get back to you on this, uh, in the States, I mean, it's essentially a slavery system now. I don't know how else to describe it, where people are working for corporations uh, for nothing um, and doing it at huge risk to their health. But um, talk to me about the, the American prison system.
2: So the, one of the most interesting aspects of the American prison system is, and I always start with this, and it's going to sound uh, tangential, uh, if you go to my Twitter profile, you'll see that I have a pin tweet that says uh, three states, the population of the prison population in the United States, comprises of three states, basically. Uh, I think it's Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, or one of the bigger of, of those Western states. Now, they have six senators representing those very small states. Now, there are prisons in every state in the country where those people cannot even vote. Those people are counted against the census population of that area. So often these people are moved to rural areas where they're bolstering the uh, Backward uh, Right wing political uh, agenda of people who wouldn't have much of a say, uh, but before gerrymandering and for this use of uh, prisoner loading uh, you have a, a system where uh, it, you you can't help but see that there's a very strong political motive even beyond the idea of law and order as a, as a political force. And what you have there is that, uh, it, as in many w- ways, they've, they've, through a neoliberal project of Reagan uh, moving through Clinton and uh, through uh, Trump today, um, you have a situation where uh, every sort of transaction that the prisoners are encountering any sort of humanity that they're, they're encountering uh, cost them money. Uh, they got rid of, it is pre-COVID, got rid of in visit, uh, in-person visits uh, in many places where they then made people use a Skype like the uh, program where they paid $3 a minute where the people still had to go into the penitentiary. They are farming these uh, young men, often Black, to death. There, it's 16 tons of what do you get? It is truly, uh, it's truly a, a modern uh, slavery that
1: we uh, we are are seeing in ways that I cannot even imagine. Dell, you wanted to weigh in. Uh, well, just a couple of things. First of all, people might not know that when uh, the Mike Harris government was in power here in Ontario, uh, a private corporation was contracted to build uh, the jail that's up in Penetanguishene. And they ran it as a private jail on behalf of the government for five years, which was the term. And then it was reviewed. And I I think there was a change of government. And that was the end of the contract. And it went back to being a public institution. So the one good thing we have uh, in Canada is at least jails and prisons are not being run as private institutions. And as I understand it, and David would know more than I about this, but as I understand it, these are really profit-making institutions in in the United States where you need a steady feed of prisoners in them so that you have the workers off whose backs you can make a profit. At least we don't have that. And, And just one anecdote for you, I happened to be in the court of appeal one day when there was a fellow from Minnesota who was there Uh, Representing himself on an appeal to the Court of Appeal. He had robbed someplace in Minnesota, run across the border, been caught and extradited back to Minnesota where he pled guilty. And he said, Well, I pled guilty. And I was hearing his story in in court. "I, I, I pled guilty and was ready to do my time. But then what happened was they sent me to Texas because Minnesota had a contract with a private jail down in Texas where he was sent and he said the conditions were horrific. He managed to escape and run back to Canada. So when I saw him, he was being extradited a second time to go back to jail. And that anecdote, that's probably going back, oh, 10 years now has always struck me as one fundamental difference between the American and Canadian system. But what we've picked up from the American system in the jails is we now build the industrial style profit-making jails when it comes to architecture. So we've actually taken this horrific architecture out of the United States jails and in Ontario, at least, that's what we now use. And it's quite inhumane. And it includes things like David was just mentioning, uh, although they don't need to pay for it, rather than having visits with family, they're like Zoom visits that they have with their family, even pre-COVID.
0: So, by architecture, are we talking, you know, Foucault's panopticon? I mean, <laughs> what what is the architecture de- describing?
1: Uh, the architecture is: you hire as few guards as possible. You do everything possible uh, mechanically and through video surveillance. And you basically let the inmates take care of themselves in a pressure cooker situation where something is bound to pop and with horrible medical care.
0: I'm sure. Uh, David chime in.
1: So I I think that, you know, when
2: you, you look at these, the the way we organize space and, you know, we organize justice through space through prisons and that the fact that we are uh, Privatizing these these spaces, uh, understanding them as sources of profit. Uh, even those prisons that are, are state prisons in the states are often, uh, you know, for profit in certain ways, where they're they're contracted out, they're run by other organizations uh, who who are incentivized to to cut corners. Um, there are uh, for profit uh, juvenile prisons. Uh, I come from a loser near Luzerne County, where they had the uh, Kids for Cash scandal. Um, and that was where they were, they were actually uh, trumping up, uh, cases against children. So they would then go to a private, uh, private, uh, juvenile detention center where they would then get contracts and kickbacks, um, where you have a system like that and where you have a system where, uh, ensuring that, uh, we have a large stable of people in a district that can't vote. You have a, a situation where, um, the architecture of those places really starts to, to repre- really represent. Uh, you know, sort of the, the the terrible sculpture of our society.
0: I'm going to draw the camera back a little bit and uh, to a wider view now, because I'm, I know there are probably some people out there in listener land, and by the way, you're listening to the Radical Reverend show here on our Law and Disorder panel, um, who are saying, okay, so, but, but, you know, there's that fear factor, right, out there in the community. And it, of course, this is not. It doesn't come when you're born. Um, This is this is part of our culture, but um, but what do we do about that person who you know the 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 woman who's been beaten up and abused, and the restraining order doesn't mean anything, and um, she's genuinely in fear for her life. And what do we do with that guy? Um, So I'm going to put it to you, Dell. What do we do with that guy?
1: I think there are some individuals who at least on a temporary basis need to be separated from society for the protection of others. I think the number of people we separate from society, as I've already said, is way, way higher than we need to. The problem for me is that I think that fear is built on two twin myths The one twin is that black indigenous and other persons of color commit more crime than white people. The second myth is that marginalized poor people commit more crime than middle-class or well-off people. From my 30 years of experience, that's false. And I think those two myths, despite the fact that they're false, are perpetuated by the over-policing of those people. So it looks like they're committing more crime. So it's those communities who get labeled as the criminals and that the media and the police teach us to fear. So while I think that there are some people who need to be separated from society, at least on a temporary basis, as I said. The problem is who we're separating from society is based on these myths, not on the fact that people are actually dangerous.
0: So I'm gonna push you a little bit here um, and say, uh, absolutely, I mean, that would ring true with most folk, I think. Um, Isn't it also true that more dollars buy more justice? If you're wealthy and you can afford a top criminal defense lawyer, uh, Dell, I'm going to direct this at you in Toronto. Uh, what are your chances of going to prison are? I'm just going to you know throw a wild guess out there. Less than that poor indigenous person who also gets charged, Dell.
1: It happens at various places in the system. First, it happens with the police officer over policing. The next place it happens is when despite the fact that in Ontario, we have a duty counsel system, some poor kid from a marginalized community comes into court. They're not gonna get bail because they're not from a middle-class family. They're gonna plead guilty to get out as soon as they can. So they get criminalized. They're now labeled as a criminal. You're right. The person who has the means to retain a lawyer to be there at the bail hearing much more likely to get them out on bail, which is a very, very important first step to whether you're going to go to prison or not. Mm -hmm. It's a crucial first step. I also think that systemically justices of the peace, crown attorneys, when they think about bail and whether someone's bailable, Think about, does this person have a situation like me, a middle-class white person normally can go to, so that it's safe to let them out on bail? So we have all of that happening at the front end. Um, Then you get to how most cases are dealt with in the criminal courts, that is negotiations between defense counsel and crown attorneys. And you know, I, do those resolutions end up better for white folks? I'm not sure. When it actually comes to trial, I, I can say I'm pretty proud of the uh, legal aid system in Ontario and my colleagues who fight tooth and nail for their clients uh, when they go to trial. So I, I, I don't think that being able to hire a big name lawyer makes that much difference when it comes to the trial. What I think might make a difference is if you're in a jury trial, all of the prejudices that those 12 people are going to bring into the courtroom to decide the case and inherent biases by certain judges. But I I, I actually don't think money to hire a lawyer for your trial is the biggest thing here.
0: Yeah, but it does enter in, David.
2: I actually want to get back to the to the source of 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 sort of arrest and discussing a little bit about the police and then looping back into sort of the broader justice discussion. People really worry that there's going to be more criminals on the street. Uh, That's, that's a big thing that if you ask people, if you pull them, they say, you know, I'm, I'm worried about that. Then there's also, you know, a lot of hysteria, you know, we have this sort of stranger danger mentality where we think like all the bad things that happen to people happen because bad people from somewhere else are doing those things. But, you know, as we know, people are often murdered by their family members. Uh, Sexual abuse often happens at the, the hands of parents or, or, or near, you know, live in Members of the family, um, and you know those types of things. They do, they do happen. But you aren't safer because of police. Thirty-eight percent of murders are, are unsolved, or you know, and dealt with. And over a course of a year, sixty-six percent of rapes. That means two out of every three rapists go free. Seventy percent of the robberies are unsolved, which basically means that robberies are a fact of life with no recourse. Um, so we have to ask, like, what are we going to do to get an extra level of shorty? When people call the police, nine out of ten times it's for a non-violent encounter. And we have to say, are we willing to put black and brown young men, young women, trans people in in the system because... We're a little upset about, uh, you know, a traffic violation, or you know, so people are acting up in a store allegedly, or you know, any sort of sort of what as you say, Karen offense. But that's you know that's what people are calling for most of the time. So we have to think what we have to reassess what our sense of safety is, and then also have a realistic view of what that means.
0: Yeah, uh, I was going to just interject there that. Uh we just had a recent vote of course most people are aware at city council a very very modest proposal to defund the police by 10 percent and in fact the reverse happened they ended up giving them more money for body cameras um i I immediately tweeted out you know we don't want to watch violence happen we want to stop violence from happening uh it didn't help george floyd um so but but that so that means 70 uh, but 30 percent of the population were in favor of defunding 70 percent were not that that's Why the counselors voted against it in part, it, it, in part, of course, it's also our culture. I mean, I'm like the rest of us, I watch you know, law and order television this is a lot of what's on TV these days. Um, we we lionize and you know, uh, our, our police enforcement folk, and and I happen to know because the PTS work, uh, PTSD work that I did. Yeah. I mean, these frontline workers are at high risk of suicide. It's not a great job for many of them. And they're working class kids. Dell, what are your thoughts?
1: I just want to come back to what David said about the types of calls that are made, because I think most policing isn't even about the calls. And, and I want to come back to this concept of demilitarization. I mean, when I was a kid, I was taught, you know, the policeman, and I'm old enough that it was the policeman, uh, is your friend. And um, I kind of went along with that concept of what the police do until I became a a criminal defense lawyer and got to start to see the harm that they do. So when I talk about demilitarization of policing, um, what does that mean? Well, it means that the current system assumes we're at war, right? You need a military because you're at war. So if you're at war, you need to have an enemy. So we've got to define who the enemy is. And what happens is we use the prejudices that we have in our society to define who the enemy is. So it's going to be racist ideology, classism, attacking people of different sexual orientations. They become the enemy. And, and, and the problem for me is, and I'm not sure what the solution is, people smarter than me may have the solution to this, but the the problem is that once you train the police that they're at war and that these people are the enemy, they go out looking for them, whether there's a call from a citizen or not. Yeah, And absolutely. so, you know, black kids... They're getting harassed by the police because the police are out there looking for the enemy mm. and seeing what the enemy's doing. And then, when it gets worse, is when you have a violent encounter because the police, having been militarized and thinking of these people as the enemy, react violently. They've been trained to react violently. It happens in their police training, and it happens through police unions as well. And, you know, there's the horrible saying of the police, I would rather be tried by 12 than carried by six. In other words, I'll take the chance on killing someone and going to trial and getting acquitted as opposed to getting killed, even though there's probably very little risk of getting killed in that situation. And and so there's this war enemy mentality.
0: Not to mention the hardware that they're all carrying, uh, which seems bizarre. You don't need a gun. You don't need the bulletproof
1: vest. You don't need to be in a car. Mm -hmm. You could actually be out there with the rest of the community, building community. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to have a militarized force, you're in your tank with your gun, with your bulletproof vest on. And I I think some of these police officers, because of their training, they are truly fearful. I mean, they're being they are suffering from trauma from their training, and then we put these armed, traumatized people out on the street to go to our
0: policing. Yeah, David, you wanted to jump in here. I think that one of the things that like we
2: don't talk about enough because we do talk about training, we do talk about uh, how the culture is 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 discussed and about with the unions. I I think Dell makes amazing points there. we have to think about the online culture that's developed around policing. There really has become niche products and niche culture, niche memes uh, for police, where they actually view themselves as, as a protected class, a separate people. This Blue Lives Matter movement is a hate group. It, it defines the people they're serving and protecting as the enemy, as Dell has said. And if you go online and you're gonna, you're starting to see it in Canada now. And I, I'm just warning everyone here, is that as that American cop culture bleeds up here, you are going to see more black and brown people shot. Yeah. That is going to happen.
0: Uh, well, we're we're already sadly seeing it. We're talking now, of course, on the Law and Disorder panel on the Radical Reverend Show and my two guests, Del Doucette, a criminal lawyer of 30 plus years, uh, been at appeal court. Uh, helping to overturn wrongful uh, convictions as well. And we also have David Slavic, um, who has just recently moved to Canada from the States, uh, been in DC, trading activists, again, been in law and worked on policy in the former Yugoslavia. So uh, uh, lots of background, especially around the justice system. Um, I just wanted to share a story. Uh, as a street kid myself, back in the day, um, and we were 15 and 16 years old and we were living on the street, the police were definitely not our friends. Um, they were not our friends at all. Uh, the nar- narcs, as we call them back, the narcotics squad back then, in plain clothes, were exactly the same thing to us as bikers, as the hell's angels of the Satan's choice back then. They to us were the same kind of individual, just different uniforms. And this represented the same danger, the danger of getting beaten up, uh, harassed, attacked, assaulted um, was the same for for kids that live on the street. I'm sure it still is. So um, yeah, so let's talk where we, we move from the prisons back to police, but let's do it. So. Uh, Yesterday I was at this uh, No Pride in Policing Coalition demonstration. There have been many, of course, thousands of people in the street calling for defunding. um, In Toronto, sadly, and in our country, very little response to that. Um, But David, you had mentioned um, uh, pre-this show about a couple of responses, uh, some that seem to be working, some that aren't. Um, Othello was one of them you mentioned, but you also mentioned a situation where kind of a vigilante group got together because this has been a conversation what do you do if you don't have the police running around and this militarized force then then what are the options so talk about what's happened in your experience David
2: what you're seeing is that across the country uh United States you're seeing um really disparate movements uh, work in, in concert, but also in, in very separate ways. Because policing is not a national uh, issue in, in the same way that it is in Canada, and because there isn't a, a, a unified criminal code across the United States, we have federal laws, of course, that you can break and you can go to federal court. You can go to federal uh, prison, which is very bad, I assure you. Um, but most of the, the laws are executed at the state level. That as as well is with policing. Um, so the approaches to, to conquer sort of the problem of policing are going to be different in different areas. Um, we've seen some really interesting successes. Um, I think that it, you're seeing people uh, work on uh, deliberative tools to talk about how we're going to uh, approach, you know, those things that we view as threats in our community, uh, um, you know, working uh, to, uh, smooth out situations. There's a, a community core in um, in San Francisco that's being developed to respond to most uh, 911 calls that would have been sent directly to the police. Um, they're investing in there in that that program. Um, you're seeing some more volunteer type of programs uh, get. Get, uh, instituted in, in neighborhoods that are overpoliced and at threat from the police. Um, and that's been working because if it doesn't if the call never gets made or if the uh, police officer on patrol does not see uh, the problem, then it, then it hopefully isn't the problem. Uh, because it could be dealt with within the community, uh, we saw something a little more um, reckless uh, in in Seattle in the uh, Capitol Hill autonomous zone, uh, which I, it was really interesting. It's sort of like a Paris, uh, like a like the Paris Commune, uh, you know, that Mark Schrock wrote about, where uh, a number of young uh, anarchists and uh, Antifa took over a, an area of, of the city to uh, proclaim that Black lives mattered in that area, and that police were not welcome. Um, during that time, uh, there was, like, a lot of fun there was a lot of really interesting things going on a lot of teach-ins sort of almost 1960s sort of environment um however it turned dark well, one day uh and this brought essentially the uh capital hill autonomous zone to an end uh when they uh armed uh vigilantes that were actually sort of appointed by the collective there uh with ar-15s i believe shot uh two uh black teenagers who had been joyriding in a car or allegedly joyriding in a car, um, who hadn't done any harm to anyone. They were just essentially doing what everyone else is doing there and occupying a a space in a place outside their remit, uh, in a way that they felt was liberating. Um, it was very interesting to see some people who are on the left, uh, cheer this and say, you know, uh, they they effed up and found out. I believe that was the quote that I was seeing around. And the fact is that what you realize is that when you make cops, I don't care if you call them not cops, uh, if, you, if you don't call them cops, they they still act like cops. And we have to, we really um, worry about that kind of uh, mentality and how we execute that in uh, these new forms of, of governance.
0: Yeah, I just thought it was an interesting story. And and it's one, of course, that's not new. Um, I mean, my daughter lives in Mexico, usually six months of the year, not since COVID. But, um, you know, in many developing nations of which I've traveled, uh, the cops are useless. I mean, you don't call the cops unless you want to pay somebody off. They're kind of useless. So vigilantism is the way of the, of the place. And it's usually horrendous. It's usually crazy and dangerous and ends up in somebody getting... Um, hurt, so I think that's the other fear that needs to be named when we're talking about abolishing the police or at least f- cutting fifty percent out of their budgets. Dell.
1: I actually have, have two fears. That's one of my fears, and, and and so when we look at the policing as it exists today, the question for me is reform or restart, and I think it depends on what police force you're talking about. I think some are so militarized that they need to be replaced. Others may be capable of reform. And I think you know, you got to look at each situation as it comes. My one fear is vigilantism, my other is private police. That, and I think this could really hurt poor, marginalized people yes. that people who have assets in society say, okay abolish the police, go ahead. we will hire our own private security firms, and I think they will be worse. Uh, so I think it's really important whether you're doing reform or restarting to get something in place. Uh, some people may say my fears are misplaced, but they are really real, uh, they are real fears for me that you get one of those two things happening. Uh, if you don't. And, and, you know, the one example of people who don't go to the police in in Canada is gangs. I mean, you know, Musatano got gunned down in Burlington the other day. They settled their scores privately.
0: Yeah. And interesting that you should talk about the private police because certainly that's already in place. It was very obvious to me as a political representative, uh, the BIAs across Toronto and across Ontario, actually the movement started in Toronto, um, many of those BIs hired their own security for their own areas. And part of the BIA funds go into that because they found the police not responsive enough to what are usually not violent crimes, but crimes of theft, vandalism, that kind of thing at their storefronts. So that's already happening. Um, David, what, what are your thoughts about that private policing and your own example coming out of Seattle?
2: So I think that you you will see you know sort of two tiers. You'll have the the vigilante sort of approach, and that'll be in the the poorer communities, rural communities, uh, communities where there isn't a a a capital interest in creating this the sort of uh, ordered uh, public space. And now I I say ordered public space, I don't say lawful environment, because often the way that police are used against people in a space is it's about. controlling who's a, able to use it in the public space, uh, who's allowed to access it in what ways. And I think if you go to any park in Toronto, you will see upper middle-class white people drinking beer, right? I think, and I, and, you know, I, I've i done it myself. I'm going to just come out in full disclosure. But you also, if you go to Christie Pitts, you see police hassling 21-year-old kids well over the drinking age for, you know, casually having a beer with, you know, a cookout. Um, not not getting crazy, not causing a, a COVID outbreak like in uh, Trinity Bellwoods, but you understand that like there are different rules, and that that is that's the way it happens. And if you have these private police forces, they are literally paid to protect those people to protect capital in a way that that we know in Toronto because developers do run the city. Uh, the police do pre- protect capital in ways that we're uncomfortable with despite the fact that we pay their salaries. Uh, we are in a position where we have to think about how do we allow uh, that sort of contract to be entered into? Should it be illegal? You know, if, if it is over a public space, the second they are in a public space, should that be illegal? We don't let private militaries run around the country. And with the militarization of police, we are doing that now yeah. for a mall. <laughs>
0: Let's uh, we've we've got about not that much time left. Sometime, um, let's talk about better models. Let's talk about the solutions now. We've been looking at uh, for the last almost hour uh, the prison system, the police system, as we often do these days on law and disorder panel. Um, where is it better? Like, is there a place in the world where the law and order system just functions better than we do now? I mean, David, you've alluded to the fact that we're you know. In, to some degree, and Dell, you've said this too, better than the states. Where's better than Canada? What about Scandinavia? We always look to Scandinavia.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know, but Sherry, I just want to stop for a minute. I, I, we are, I'm not sure we're better than the states. I'm not sure I accept that. Uh, I think that systemic racism is uh, no less present here than it's in the United States. And I don't think the militarization of the police is uh, less than in the United States. I spoke a little bit why I think the uh, prison system is better because it's remained public and not private, but uh, I would not go there with us being better than the United States when it comes to the policing side. And quite frankly, Uh, I'm ignorant of what a better model might be outside the United States or Canada. But I was fascinated by one uh, piece I did get to read, and I think it was on Camden, New Jersey, where there was a very bad uh, police force and the city disbanded its police force. It just got rid of it. So this is one of these situations where reform won't work. We got to restart. And what they did was the county police were a lot better. And so what they did was they expanded the count, fired the city police, expanded the county police, but had them trained in a different model of response. So that's at least one, maybe the only one I know of, where there's actually been action that, at least in the article I read, uh, seemed to have improved things.
0: Yeah, and, and I take it back. I mean, I should not have said i certainly we're just everybody's racist uh, in Canada as, as the States, um, but did note your um, shout out. Well, again, in a very minor way, our prisons are public. David, um, any, play, any place you can think of that does it better? I mean, uh, let me shoot this out. Um, I mean, I like a good you know detective show as much as the next person. Um, and it's interesting to watch British Detective movies Uh, in London, in particular, where first of all they don't—they're not running around in uniform for the most part. They look like everybody else, and they don't carry guns for the most part. Again, they have their SWAT teams, uh, their version of that, but I mean they don't carry guns. Um, So I thought this is true of a lot of countries where people don't walk, even cops don't walk away around with guns. Um, But David, any any thoughts on if not a model, at least someplace that does it better or? let's broaden it. Let's say, how should we do it better? Um, I could go through the demands of the no crime policing, but I'm sure you have your own. David.
2: So I think that one place to start is to understand that in many ways, people are policed differently for different reasons, culturally. Um, If you look at Singapore, um, you know, there are things that are that are against the law there and and harshly punished that, you know, we would we would laugh at. Uh, But They they also don't shoot their citizens in the street, you know. So that's you know there is a there is what is better is an interesting uh, sort of definition. I think that the things that we can look at as as disarming police first. I think that's a great first step. Um, Moving uh, the funding of police to services that actually help cure the root causes of the things that we view as problems in society. Uh, and that can actually have knock-on effects in other ways to help improve our communities. Um, And and finally, it's it's about getting a framework that locally works uh, such that people feel that they're being protected in a way that isn't about patriarchy but about connectedness.
0: Yeah, I mean one of the things that we haven't touched on that is really I think pretty crucial is decriminalizing um, a lot of things that are now criminal.
1: Oh, well, Sherry, if I could pick up, just jump in on that. I mean, um, the prime minister and minister of justice haven't got back to me yet, but I, I, I've written to them saying, look, just decriminalize the simple possession of all drugs. I mean, and and part of the reason I care about that is the whole war mentality or a good part of the war mentality comes from this rhetoric about the war on drugs, which is a medical problem if you're talking about addiction. And we've criminalized. Not only that, those are, and you spoke of your teenage experience, those are one of the key ways in which the police are shaking down brown, black youth in our city. And it would be so easy to get rid of. I mean, Portugal has done it. The sky did not come crashing down. In fact, what happened in Portugal is the rate of crime went down. And the reason the rate of crime went down is people didn't have to, if they were addicted and desperate, steal. So, you know, there. that's, that's just a no-brainer that could be done by parliament right away. Uh, politically, will it ever happen? I doubt it, but it would be so easy.
0: And interestingly enough, uh, we're in COVID, of course, still, uh, there are far more deaths from um, the epidemic, the drug and opioid overdose in BC than there ever have been from COVID. Way, way more. And that continues constantly everywhere in Canada um so so that takes a lot of it and and in fact um that would take a lot of policing away uh I mean reducing the scope of them creating alternatives we've talked about defunding them and demilitarizing them um and also dismantling special constables this was one of the demands that I thought was kind of interesting like TTC I mean like why are we policing the TTC for people that don't pay their fares? I mean first of all the times I've travel in the of People don't pay their fares. Who cares? It should be free.
2: I have very strong feelings about this actually. I, I think that um the the cost of enforcement exceeds the the amount that they would recoup. Uh the the amounts are absolutely extraordinary. People who hop on the train are they're not going out to to like I don't know, uh, trick or treat. They're not going out to, to, to vandalize the homes. They're going to work. They're going to see their kids. They're going to school. And, you know, the fact is that we're criminalizing the type of Protestant work ethic that we claim to love in Canada. And, you know, we it's not it's not limited to the United States. You know, this is a this is a a Protestant country with the Protestant work ethic.
0: Oh, Catholic.
2: <laughs> no, so, absolutely, absolutely. I think I think there's a there's a whole province that would would differ about that. But uh, you know the thing is that we have this influence where we think people should work hard, people should get to work on time, people should take care of their kids, and that's what people are doing on public transit. And the fact that we cannot get our head right around that, and we can't say, all right, we have a climate issue, we have a work issue, we have a poverty issue that can be cured, r- rather than doing that. We're sending jackbooted thugs on the bus. It's
1: ridiculous. Well, and Sherry, just I was just going to say the same paradigm applies to the police. There are all these things the police are doing in enforcement that we don't need enforced.
0: Yeah, exactly. So a couple of quick things. You know, I'll give you a minute each. One thing we didn't talk about was the RCMP. Uh, again, you know, founded as 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 a settler army against Indigenous. Um, And uh, the other thing is just this piece of news uh, that came out today where this statue, um, you know, this pro-Nazi statue was defaced. Who knew there was a pro-Nazi statue in Oakville in the first place? It's there, it's big. Uh, It was defaced and the Hamilton police are mulling over charging this is a hate crime. this is insane. Anyway, so uh, just very fast flash. talk about the RCMP just for a minute. We don't have a lot of time left. Um, what should we be do- what should we do there and then um, uh, what is a, a nasty statue doing in nofill? Del. Uh
1: The RCMP should be confined to a very limited amount of national policing that we need. And they shouldn't be doing contract policing arrest around the rest of the country. Policing works best, if it's going to work at all, when you've got local people controlling the local police system. So I would get rid of the RCMP doing that. I think they should charge the statue with being a hate crime. <laughs> yes.
2: David. I think that's that's a great point. I mean, the fact that that still stands, as we talk about, uh, you know, uh, anti-Semitism in in uh, Canada, we we talk we don't address this. We address Palestinian uh, activists. You know, this is the these are the types of things that we need to to go out and and to cure uh, anti-Semitism in Canada, and you know the the hateful truth about that nazi statue is that as a matter of course in in uh canadian foreign policy they have brought back some of the worst uh Right wingers that to fight communism. This is all going back to because we don't want people to have the things they need, um, and you know that that's why we have a statue of a Nazi in Canada, and the, you know that's the type of thing that we have to think about. Uh, you know those effects that that are local. You know with the local police, you know are impacted by our foreign policy. So we have to say how do we work collectively to be a better country.
0: And very quickly on the RCMP, David.
2: So I think that one of the things that uh, I, I have to explain to my American friends is that the RCMP is a, is is much better, as we say, that's one of those uh, odd things to say, but when it comes to indigenous people and, and, and uh, racialized people, they've had a, a terrible history. Um, we're seeing, um, them increasingly pull the trigger when they shouldn't be. Uh, And I think that, like I said, if you go and you look at some of those people involved in those officer-involved shootings, or I I call them murders, uh, you will see that they're involved in American-style police culture online. Uh, And when you have a a group of people policing other people who think they're either above or a separate class, you are going to have genocide.
0: And I want to thank here on the Radical Reverend Show, my two terrific guests today, Del Doucette, criminal lawyer of many, many years, and David Slavik, uh, professor of law and policy, uh, recent Canadian from Washington DC, where he was last active. And love to hear from you out there in listener land, listen on podcasts, listen on the radio, listen and let me know what you think. Until next time on the Radical Reverend Show. Mm -hmm.